On today's episode, 10 treatments to avoid with tendon pain. Welcome to the Run Smarter podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I'm a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default, become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for joining me. Uh, Just before I get started, I am releasing this episode onto both of my podcasts, the Run Smarter podcast and the Overcoming PHT podcast, uh, just because I think it would benefit both groups immensely. It sort of fits within the um, the ethos of both podcasts. So I'm going to be reviewing a research paper, which the author is Jill Cook, who, if you're not familiar, uh, most health professionals would be. She is a researcher from Australia and is very, very heavily regarded in, highly regarded in tendon management, tendon research, um, tendon rehab, those sorts of things. Um, eccentric loading sort of, um, sort of stemmed from her, even though she says it doesn't really, it shouldn't really be her eccentric exercises because, you know, she didn't come up with them. Most people will say uh, when it comes to uh, a tendon management. Oh, I follow Jill Cook's eccentric exercises um, just because she seemed to be uh, a big proponent of them and did a lot of work alongside them to find that, um, yeah, I think it was isometrics as well. Isometrics and eccentrics seems to be around her. Anyway, fantastic lady. I've had a chance to see her in person, um, which was great. Um, Speaking of, I was very, very disappointed. Um, you might hear in the next couple of weeks, I actually got COVID um, and that episode will be released um, on the Run Smarter podcast in a couple of weeks, but I did get COVID last week and um, after, you know, three years of dodging it, managed to, it finally got the better of me, but really disappointed because I last week had um, a ticket to a running symposium, which was going to have Christian Barton talking um, Ebony Rio, two fantastic tendon researchers um, when it comes to running and those sorts of things, a bunch of other people, but also Rich Willie, who I've had on the podcast. He is my favorite US researcher of all time and sort of messaged him saying, oh, I'll come to the symposium. It'd be great to catch up. Great to have a chat. And he was excited as well. And yeah, fortunately caught COVID. Didn't get to attend. Um, Sent him another email saying, sorry, mate, can't, can't make it. And yeah, very disappointing. Anyway, um, feeling better now, but you might hear a little bit nasally, um, but we soldier on. 
this paper that I'm going to talk about was released in 2018. So, you know, amongst the grand scheme of things, quite recent, five years old, but, um, you know, I would consider that amongst sort of um, recent papers. And the title of the paper is 10 Treatments to Avoid in Patients with Lower Limb Tendon Pain. So Jill Cook, like I say, she's done a ton of research onto tendons and rehab and advice and pretty much like if you're, we'll see like a whole bunch of like high athletes, high elite athletes with tendon pain and um, yeah, very, very highly regarded. She's now instead of, she sort of flicked the switch and said, okay, instead of this is what to do, this is what also to avoid. These are 10 things and learning these 10 things, going through these 10 things, um, I'll chime in here and there as I read the paper, but you sort of inadvertently know what to do when learning what not to do. Um, so let's start with the intro. So the intro says tendon pain and dysfunction are the presenting clinical features of tendinopathy. So we're looking at pain and we're looking at dysfunction. So pain obviously being um, something that's sore, painful, sharp, like all those sort of things. Dysfunction more relates to unable to do a certain task. So you can have dysfunction and not really have pain. Like someone can come across as weak and sort of hobble up a, up a flight of stairs that is dysfunction, but may not necessarily be painful. So tendon pain and dysfunction are the presenting clinical features of tendinopathy. Research has investigated many treatment options, but consistent positive clinical outcomes remain elusive. We know that treatment should be active, and she puts in brackets exercise-based, and that a consistent and ongoing investigation in rehab, rehabilitation, is required. It is important to maximize the investment by understanding the treatments that do not help. So the following 10 points highlight treatment approaches to avoid as they do not improve lower limb tendinopathy. So let's go through number one. Number one that Jill Cook writes down is don't rest completely. She says, rest decreases the, the low tolerance of a tendon and complete rest decreases the tendon stiffness within two weeks. So quite um, <clears throat> interesting there. So this is, if you've followed the podcast in earlier episodes, but sort of follows the pain, rest, weakness, downward spiral, which a lot of people that listen to the podcast sort of resonate with and say, you know what, that's been me with a couple of injuries. That's been me in the past. I've sort of avoided all the things that produced pain and it didn't get better. If anything, I got weaker. And if anything, I probably have more pain than when I started. This is because complete rest decreases the load or tolerance or um, foundation of a tendon, but it also reduces, as this paper suggests, or decreases the tendon stiffness. So most people think of stiffness in terms of flexibility and people want to be flexible. Um, a lot of times when people say they have pain, they're like, oh, I feel so stiff. I feel like I've just lost all flexibility. This is referring to something a little bit different because when it comes to tendon function, we actually want our tendons to be really stiff. Stiffness is actually a really, really good thing. If we're talking about the joints, um, you know, maybe some more mobility and flexibility 
is more advantageous than a really stiff joint. But when it comes to tendons, stiffness is really important. It, it's because it's sort of, we want to act like a really efficient spring. So if you use your Achilles as an example, if you are hopping up and down, you want that tendon to be really stiff in order for it to function appropriately. If it's not stiff and there's a lot of movement, a lot of moving parts, you're generating unnecessary forces. It's really sloppy, really inefficient. And yeah, like I say, accumulates a lot of forces that then, um, you know, because it's dysfunctional, it's a dysfunctional way of moving or an unoptimal way of moving can increase your likelihood of injury. So it says that um, tendon stiffness can decrease within two weeks. The paper also goes on. So we're still on um, don't rest completely under this topic. It also decreases strength and power in the muscle attached to the bone and the function of the kinetic chain and likely changes in the motor cortex leaving the person less able to tolerate load in multiple levels. So we're looking at, okay, obviously a decrease in strength and power. Most people can appreciate that as there's, as someone rests, um, you know, if you don't use it, you lose it. The function of the, the whole kinetic chain is something that's like a little bit more broader speaking. So if you did have a proximal hamstring tendinopathy and you did completely rest, you are then also losing the strength and power of your hips, the muscles around your hips, also around your knee. So then if you go back to returning to running or cycling or trying to negotiate upstairs, that overall kinetic chain has lost power and strength. But interestingly in this paper, they're also talking about changes in the motor cortex. So that's the pathways, the neural pathways within the brain, meaning that if you do have pain and you do rest, uh, the body starts to reorganize the way it should be moving or starts to move more apprehensively, starts to app- like be a bit more cautious, you start either limping or just like, you know, compensating in certain ways. And yeah, the more the motor cortex gets like reorganized, which we don't want that if we want to return to a full level of function. The paper continues, treatment should initially reduce pain. Treatment should initially reduce painful high tendon load and introduce beneficial loads. So what we're doing instead of completely resting is we're finding, okay, well, what loads produce pain? Let's modify or reduce those. Usually the high tendon load activities, which we'll talk about in a second, but then you need to replace that with beneficial loads. So talking about what is our adaptation zone? What's our current adaptation zone? Let's introduce or like do that more often to sort of preserve a lot of the strength that we do have. Once pain is low and stable, load can be increased slowly and improve the capacity of the tendon. So this is the idea of rehab. It's every injury that I essentially see is let's try and work out what you can tolerate, follow the symptoms. Once we know what you can tolerate, we then gradually build up from there. And again, pay attention to symptoms. Um, This is the overall idea. It's very, very simplistic, but every rehab sort of follows this general premise. Okay, so that was don't rest completely. Number two is don't prescribe incorrect exercises. So the paper says, understanding load is essential for correct exercise prescription. 
High tendon load occurs when it's used like a spring, such as jumping, changing direction, and sprinting. Tendon springs must be loaded quickly to be effective, so sort of what we're talking about before. So slow exercises, even with weights, are not high tension load and can be used in the early rehab process. However, exercising at longer muscle length can compress the tendon at its insertion. This adds substantial load and should be avoided even slowly early in rehab. So we're talking about the early stages of rehab, but essentially talking about uh, when a tendon acts like a spring, like they say here, jumping, running, running up hills, um, box jumps, those sorts of things where it needs to act like a spring, that's going to be its highest demand. And so usually those sort of exercises, those sort of activities should be reduced. But we can also load the tendon um, in things that don't revolve it to act like a spring. So we can do that slow, heavy exercises that do involve weights. That can be really effective in the early stage of rehab. But there's the other side of it. If we do the slow, heavy load, but take it through, take the tendon through a large range of movement all the way up until it's like um, highest stretch point, it says that this can also compress the tendon at its insertion. So a muscle um, travels through a body, the muscle then becomes tendon and then the tendon attaches to the bone. Usually the tendon will wrap around the bone to some description and then attach. Um, That's how you produce movement because movement is movement of the bones um, and that movement won't occur unless the muscle or tendon wraps around the bone, attaches to the other side so that when that muscle and tendon are shortened, it causes a, a movement in the bone. So if you then load the tendon and take it to its absolute range, because that tendon wraps around the bone and it connects to the other side, you're essentially compressing that tendon into the bone. And as this paper describes, in the early stages of rehab, sometimes that can irritate and should be avoided. So step two, don't prescribe incorrect exercises to which this paper says in the early stages is probably like the spring-like um activities and also loading or um, stretching at the very ends of range. Number three is don't, just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign-up link is in the show notes, so fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. Rely on passive treatments. The paper says, passive treatments are not helpful in the long term as they promote the patient as a passive recipient of care and do not include the load tolerance of a tendon. Treatments like electrotherapy and ice temporarily alleviate pain but only for it to return when the tendon is loaded. So it doesn't do much or anything in terms of healing the tendon or recovering the tendon's state, especially in the long term. It might help reduce symptoms in the short term, but there's a lot going on there that can, I guess, um, create that effect. 
So if you use ice, ice just like numbs everything. So it's not healing anything. It's just numbing some sort of um, pain pathway. And so you might feel better and that might give you a bit of incentive to, oh, let me do this more more often or let me do this, you know, um, longer durations or whatever. Um, same with modalities, electric modalities. So we're looking at um, pretty much anything that you can plug into a wall and therapeutic ultrasound, this paper says electrotherapy. Um, those sorts of things can, I guess, dampen pain signals, but don't do anything to the condition of the tendon. So be very, very careful if that's what you are doing for the management of your tendon, particularly if you've been doing it for a long time and not really seen that long-term improvement, particularly if that's the only thing that you're doing, um, some big red flags there. Number four, avoid injection therapies. So this paper says injections of substances into the tendon have been shown to be no more effective than placebo in good control trials. Clinicians who support injection therapies incorrectly suggest that it will return a pathological tendon to normal. There is little need to intervene in the pathology as there is evidence that the tendon adapts to the pathology and has plenty of tendon tissue capable of tolerating high load. Injections may change pain in the short term as they affect the nerves, but should only be considered if the tendon has not responded to a good exercise-based program. So a little bit to unpack here. Um, first of all, it's just like clearly highlighting that injection therapies, um, they can be effective in the short term um, as they affect other areas, but doesn't it's not improving the pain because it's helping improve the pathology. It's just doing a whole bunch of other things. Um, and the injection itself, as the paper says, that cl clinicians who support injection therapies incorrectly suggest that it will return a pathological tendon to normal. So it's not doing anything to the, the inner workings of the tendon to heal it back to a healthy tendon. But there is some good signs here that the, the paper alludes to that there is evidence that even if you have a painful dysfunctional tendon, there is still plenty of healthy tendon within that to rehab that healthy part of the tendon so that it can return to full function, return to high load situations. Um, we used this, which I don't really like this analogy anymore. I, I've sort of moved away from using it, but if they, we used to sort of um, suggest or like, you know, have this uh, analogy of the tendon, a painful um, pathological tendon being like a donut. The middle of the whole of the donut is the unhealthy tendon, but you've got all this healthy tendon, which is the donut surrounding that hole. And our job of rehab is to not necessarily try and revert the good, uh, the bad tendon back to the good part, but our goal and our um, aim of rehab is to just really strengthen all the healthy parts because you've got so much more um, healthy components. I think in the very, very worst scenarios, 50% of a tendon can be pathological, but that's still 50% really healthy tendon. Um, that's in the worst, worst 
case scenarios. Some clients can have a really, really painful tendon and only 5% of that tendon is affected. Um, so what you can do is get that healthy portion of the tendon really, really strong just with good progressive rehab and you'll be able to do whatever you want. You'll be able to run marathons, sprint up hills, jump high, play team sports, all those sorts of things with um, adequate and effective rehab of the, those healthy portions. Okay, so um, avoid ejection therapy. injection therapies is that point. Um, I did a research, I did do some research and some podcast episodes on those orthobiologics. Um, how long ago was that? Um, orthobiologics, effectiveness and tendon, in tendinopathy treatment. So like earlier in the year, January, end of January, um, on the Run Smarter podcast is when I did that. Sort of just trying to come to grips of like PRP and corticosteroids and all those other injections um, and <clears throat> research emerging there. I don't know, like I feel most um, like maybe some clinicians are sort of changing their minds on that. Maybe there's some recent research that's more recent than this paper that's maybe changing the narrative there. But, you know, I'm not sure. It seems like you're trying to force something that, that isn't there. Because most of the times when you do these, when you avoid these things that are on this list and you do the right things, vast, vast majority of the time people get better. So, um, but the paper does suggest like injections may change pain in the short term and may be considered if you have failed um, to see a response in good exercise-based um, programs, which people read that and say, yeah, that's me. But when I dive a bit deeper into their unique situations, they haven't really started doing good exercise rehab. They've just been doing, you know, body weight bridges for six months or um, just banded exercises, which won't suffice. So moving on to point number five says, don't ignore tendon pain. The paper states, pain usually increases 24 hours after excess, excessive loading of the tendon. An increase in pain of two or more on a daily loading test should initiate a reduction in the aspects of training that are overloading the tendon. So how I interpreted this was, I think, an increase in two out of 10 pain above like your normal symptoms, not just two out of 10 pain flat. I think it's uh, uh, an increase in pain of two or more. So um, whatever that is above baseline for you. So that can usually happen 24 hours after excessively loading the tendon. Um, and if that's identified, reducing those elements is recommended. The paper continues, the overload is likely due to excessive spring-like movements, such as jumping, running, and changing direction. So if that's been you or something that you've subjected your body to in the last 24 hours, that's most likely the culprit. Because some people can misinterpret this, like say for proximal hamstring tendinopathy, some people can go for a, a trail run where they're running, bounding up hills, they feel fine because the tendon's warmed up. Then they finish that run and they go to work and they sit and they're sitting and they're uncomfortable. And later in the day, they're sort of shifting around and they're like, oh man, I'm having a really hard time sitting here. Um, 
sitting's my real issue. Maybe it's the chair, maybe it's the, my posture, maybe it's the way I'm sitting, um, maybe it's the amount of sitting that I've been doing, but it's not necessarily sitting and the chair isn't necessarily the culprit. It may have been the run that you did earlier in the day or the day before that, um, that might've started producing these sort of symptoms. So you need to be very careful with how you interpret what's happening. So don't ignore pain. It can be a useful tool, but accurate interpretation is required. Number six says, don't stretch the tendon. And the paper says, aside from the load on the tendon in sport, there are compressive loads on the tendon, on the bone tendon junction when it is at its longest length. So talking about that strength, um, the tendon wrapping around the bone like I was talking about before. Stretching only serves to add compressive loads that are detrimental to the tendon. So this is a little bit more absolute and a little bit, um, bit fearful. I think what Jill's saying here is don't stretch the tendon as a form of treatment. Um, don't use it as a form of treatment because it doesn't do anything. It doesn't do anything to heal the tendon. doesn't do anything to restore its capacity. doesn't do anything um, to change the tendon in the way that we want. Uh, it might make things feel a little bit better, which is why people are compelled to stretch. Like in the early days, if someone had an Achilles tendinopathy, they'd like to stretch because they feel like they're just like digging into that pain or they're reproducing a bit of that pain and it kind of numbs it a little bit, feels a little bit better for a couple of minutes afterwards. And so those behaviors and characteristics sort of compel people to do it over and over again. But what Jill's saying here is if you stretch it to its absolute limit, though that's just adding compressive load, which can be detrimental or like at least hinder the healing process. Um, what I don't like about this is particularly people with PHT have a real fear of stretching the tendon. So they've almost swung in the opposite direction and avoid stretching the tendon overall in like everyday life. So they, you know, prevent stretching the tendon when they bend over to pick something up off the floor or putting on socks or like, you know, everyday life. Um, and they're also, once they're healed, and they're back to running, back to activities, back to doing all those sort of things, they're scared to stretch the hamstring. Like if they participate in like a Pilates class or a yoga class, or um, if their hamstring's just a little bit, like the mid belly of their hamstring's a little bit sore, they're very apprehensive to stretch it because they don't want that tendon pain returning because they've heard that stretching the tendon can be detrimental. That's like quite fearful and sort of, like I say, heading in the other scope of things. Uh, but the there is some middle ground there to provide some reassurance. Yes, if your tendon is really irritated, we don't really want to stretch it because it doesn't really do anything to help um, recover things. We want to do that progressive loading like we're talking about earlier. But once you're starting to feel better, similar to how the tendon will have a load to a low tolerance to running, we'll have a low tolerance to sitting, we'll have a low tolerance to um, exercise. It will also have a low tolerance to stretching. So when people say, can I go back to Pilates? Or can I go back to my yoga class? Um, 
we need to try and find out how much stretching you can tolerate. So for PHT, you might be able to hold a static stretch for five minutes without pain irritating the hamstring. If we establish that, then we can say, fantastic, your tolerance is five minutes. How about you can do three minutes in your Pilates class and then do a whole bunch of stuff doing something else, doing something that doesn't involve hamstring stretches, then at the end of the class, you could probably do another three minutes. That's what you can tolerate. But if you can tolerate five minutes, you wouldn't do a yoga class that requires you to stretch the hamstring for 25 minutes because that's going to exceed your load or exceed your capacity. But in the same way that rehab builds up your tolerance, you can also build up your stretching tolerance. You just need to find out what that is. If you're not into stretching yoga, because some people are very content to saying not interested in doing any of that, um, but you're still fearful in stretching the tendon throughout the day, try to reprogram yourself to incorporate stretching again. Just doing it once to pick something up off the floor is not going to harm anything. And even if it is a little bit sore, similar to how doing some strength exercises are a little bit sore, it's not going to affect the long-term condition and if anything it's going to rewire that mode of programming it's going to help your confidence it's going to help you just like um, reduce that fear avoidance so just try and catch yourself if you feel like you're moving differently whether you're doing whether that's really serving you or not I feel like my voice is holding up (laughs) this is my first like solo recording since having COVID so I was wondering if you know my vocal cords could handle it but we seem to be doing okay we're up to number seven which is don't use friction massage and I would consider friction massage with like Gratstons or like um, just deep friction massage work like onto the tendon um, rather than the muscle belly this is what we're referring to the paper says a painful tendon is overloaded and irritated Massaging or frictioning the tendon can increase pain and will not help pathology. The effect on local nerves may reduce the pain in the short term only for it to return with high tendon loads. So we're just seeing like a a local effect that's probably quite short term, but um, when considering what it's actually doing, it could be irritating things and doesn't do anything like to help the overall condition of the tendons. So massage can still be recommended but just not on the tendon and um, it can be elsewhere it could be around the glutes like around the muscles and if it makes you personally feel better and you feel relaxed and you get up feeling better then maybe that's for you Um, if you don't feel any benefit then it's not for you but just keep that in mind we want to avoid friction massage over that tendon number eight don't use tendon images for diagnosis prognosis or as an outcome measure this is really important so don't use images for diagnosis such as like you know clinically trying to diagnose a condition prognosis which is trying to um, help illustrate how long it will take something to heal or what your uh, recovery time frames are looking like or as an outcome measure meaning um, whether you're getting better or not if you have like say two scans and one shows one one shows the other It's not going to be helpful in determining whether you're on the healing path or whether it's more detrimental or what you're doing is wrong, those sorts of things. 
I'll read all this out and then I'll, I'll go into my thoughts. So the paper says, abnormal tendon images, say found on an ultrasound or an MRI, in isolation do not support a diagnosis of tendon pain as asymptomatic pathology is present. There are also aspects of imaging such as vascularity or tears, vascularity just meaning like an increased amount of blood vessels in there, that allows a clinician to determine outcome. Pathology on imaging is usually very stable and does not change with treatment and reduction in pain. So images are not a good outcome measure. Very important to discuss that when imaging a tendon, it is very, very, it's not very correlated to like someone's pain and dysfunction. For example, you can have, you can scan someone's tendons and it show tears and it show degeneration and it shows a whole bunch of these really alarming things. But then you look at the person and it's a totally healthy asymptomatic individual that has no tendon pain whatsoever. Vice versa, you can have someone who has a lot of tendon pain, long history, 10 years of PHT, to then get a scan and be completely healthy. Like tendons look pretty fine, um, no tears, no nothing. There's So the correlation between imaging and presenting condition is really, really poorly correlated. I've seen a couple of occasions where they have... Um, someone's gone for a scan, they've looked at their um, tendons because they've had PHT, scanned the PHT and said, yep, you've got, a, you've got tears, these are the dimensions of these tears, um, it's quite alarming. She, she walked away being like quite fearful and like really worried about things, um, had a chat with me and then found out a couple of weeks later they actually scanned the wrong side. That other side was completely healthy, no symptoms whatsoever, um, and she had to go back in and get get rescanned. So, um, yeah, they sort of scanned a healthy tendon and said, "Oh, this lady's in pain. Uh, let's have a look at these tendons." Scanned the wrong side accidentally, found all these tears, and now they have to scan the other side. So, if the other side also shows tears, what does that mean exactly? Um, it means that there is a high probability in the healthy population that you will find some irregularities, some tears, some um, vascularities, all those sorts of things. So, you know, very, very poorly um, correlated is my point. And when I was working in clinics, uh, when I was very, when I very first graduated, uh, I, I was, I would never really work out when to send someone for scans. When would they be appropriate to send for scans? And my boss sort of mentioned to me, okay, so um, think of it this way. If you go get a scan, no matter what it comes back as, would you change your management? And a lot of times I wouldn't. So if someone's really worried, if they had tendon pain, they're like, oh, let me um, get a scan just to see what the condition of the tendon's like and what we can do about it. No matter what, if it comes back healthy, you still have a sore tendon, so we're going to rehab it anyway. But if it comes back and says you have some tears or degeneration, we're still going to treat it the exact same way. So we need, we do need to bear that in mind. When we would send someone for scans is if we're suspecting something else. If we say it fits kind of like a tendon, but it could also be this other thing. And that other thing might be quite serious. It might change our management. So 
let's send you for scans because, um, you know, we might be concerned in this direction, which isn't very, very common. Um, most times I would just say it could be this other thing, but this other thing isn't that serious. So let's just treat it like a tendon. And if it gets better, then we head in that direction. We let the response to treatment be our diagnostic tool and we move ahead in that direction. If we suspect like a, a bone stress fracture or something, then we'd send for scans pretty quickly um, just because that does change the management uh, and it is more on the serious side of things. So yeah, that's what we need to bear in mind. So number eight, don't use images for a diagnosis, prognosis, or as an outcome measure. Number nine, we have don't be worried about rupture. If you have tendon pain, a lot of my advice, if we, if you have PHT, a lot of my advice is to, um, when the body feels ready, integrate slow, heavy load, usually in the form of double leg deadlifts. As another example, if you have an Achilles tendinopathy and you have Achilles pain, my advice is to slow, heavy load, usually in the form of eccentric exercises. Um, as Jill Cook would say in the above, um, we wouldn't probably take it to the extreme when it comes to lowering your heel off a step for those eccentric calf raises. We'd probably back off those extreme ranges, but slow, heavy load, load up that tendon. But a lot of people are fearful of, you know, what about, if I, I already have tears in there. My, I've been for an MRI and I do have tears. What about if those tears get worse? Or what about if that tendon actually completely ruptures? It's very, extremely hard to do. It's very, very rare. And have I even read out what this paper's said in this section yet? I don't think I have. Um, the paper says, <laughs> pain is protective as it causes unloading of a tendon. In fact, most people who rupture a tendon have never had pain and do not present clinically despite the tendon having substantial pathology. So <laughs> in a way, it's kind of the, the tendons that don't have pain that we should be worried about rupturing. But that's usually if someone, uh, I, I usually say is a classic example, like um, in Australia, we have Aussie rules football. Um, there is a, um, my dad used to play Australian rules football and there was a club reunion. So he's in his sixties now played 40 years ago. Um, but you know, it's still like a community and 30 years go by since they all like sort of played together and they all hang around. So they all, they all know each other, but you know, every now and then they have this reunion game where they get people um, who used to play back in the day and then they just have like a charity round where they, you know, run around and um, play a bit of bit of footy. And this happened like several years ago. This is probably like 10 years ago now when I was studying. Yeah, it's about that. And my dad's like, oh, yeah, we're getting around with, we're having this reunion thing. A um, bunch of people that used to play um, back in the, the 80s and the 90s, we're all going to have, have a round for charity and that sort of stuff. And I thought to myself, this is a population where they used to play pretty competitively. They haven't done anything, no exercise for 40 years, except, you know, just drinking beers and playing golf and um, not really doing much else in terms of exercise and fitness. And then you're going to all put them on a field to play footy, let the competitive 
competitiveness get the better of themselves. They think they're probably as good as they were in their 20s. Um, this is a recipe for tendon rupture. It's a recipe. They're, they're going to be deconditioned. Um, their tendons are probably just going to be weak and like, you know, pathological in a way, but just no pain whatsoever. So they, they feel like they're, they're Superman. And rest assured, there was two Achilles ruptures that day, which is like, you know, it's hard to do. And it's happened twice in one game um, just because those conditions were met. Um, that was my thought anyway. And sort of, I guess it came to fruition with two two ruptures. Um, my dad wasn't one of them, but, you know, you can see how competitiveness would kind of get the better of a lot of people. I digress. So um, don't be worried about rupturing a tendon. It's very, very, extremely hard to do. And if you have pain, it's probably not, well, definitely pain is not a sign that a tendon will rupture because often when it does rupture, there's no underbelly clinically no pain, no dysfunction, no, no, nothing really like underneath the surface to worry someone to have a, a rupture. We are almost there. We're at number 10 and number 10 is don't rush rehabilitation. The paper says tendons need time to build strength and capacity. So does the muscle and the kinetic chain and the brain. Although it can be a substantial time and it says in brackets here about three months or more, the long-term outcomes are good if the correct rehab is completed. So take your time. These things do take time. Be patient. Be progressive with your strength exercises. Don't just do glute bridges for three months and expect to get better. Be progressive. Add the weights. Add the load. Restore the capacity. Do this patiently for three months or more. Um, sometimes it's six months. And reap the rewards that way. In summary, the paper says the above 10 treatment approaches take value resources and focus away from the best treatment rehab. So these things that um, we say, you know, to avoid, this, these are things we should avoid because if you do do them, <laughs> value it takes value and focus away from the best treatment, which is, as the paper says, evidence-based rehabilitation. A progressive, a progressive program that starts with the muscle strength program, and then progresses through to more of a spring-like exercise and incorporating endurance aspects will load the tendon correctly and the best and produce the best long-term outcomes. So let me go through these uh, again. Number one, don't rest completely. Number two, don't prescribe incorrect exercises. Number three, don't rely on passive treatments. Number four, avoid injection therapies. Number five, don't ignore tendon pain. Number six, don't stretch the tendon. Number seven, don't use friction massage. Number eight, don't use tendon images. Number nine, don't be worried about rupture. And number 10, don't rush rehabilitation. I think there's nothing like really new here. I think there's a few little tidbits here that you'll definitely take away, but just having it summarized in one paper from a really good, well-respected researcher helps um, highlight a lot of these, helps sort of consolidate and confirm a lot of the lessons that have been on this podcast. So hope you enjoyed. Hope you enjoy these uh, review papers and there'll be a few more coming out, a few more in the, the pipelines that I have scheduled in. Um, <clears throat> I'm glad that my voice and my throat sort of survived this one. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, and I'm looking forward to bringing you next episode, so I'll catch you then. And that concludes another Run Smarter lesson. I hope you walk away from this episode feeling empowered and proud to be a Run Smarter scholar. Because when I think of runners like you who are listening, I think of runners who recognize the power of knowledge, who don't just learn, but implement these lessons, who are done with repeating the same injury cycle over and over again, who want to take an educated, active role in their rehab, who are looking for evidence-based long-term solutions and will not accept problematic quick fixes. And last but not least, who serve a cause bigger than themselves and pass on the right information to other runners who need it. I look forward to bringing you another episode and helping you on your Run Smarter path.